Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for your company. Now, look, remember to tell your family and friends where they can find ADH TV. The ADH app is available to download, there it is, on the App Store on your iPhone or iPad or on your Apple TV. You can find us also on the Google Play Store as well. Just search ADH and download it. Bang. Away you go. Watch. Tonight on the program, we have the new Liberal member for the federal seat of Menzies. His name is Keith Wallahan. Very impressive man. He's replaced Keith Kevin Andrews, a good man who did terrific work dedicating himself to the Australian public. I wish him well for whatever he decides to pursue next. But Keith Wallahan is the new man in town and don't the Liberals need it. He's very well educated, including having completed a master's degree in international relations from Cambridge University. But not only that, he joined the army where he completed one tour of Timor-Leste and three combat tours in Afghanistan. In fact, in the 2011 Australia Day Honours, he was decorated with a commendation for distinguished service for performance of duty in action as a platoon commander. Keith Wallahan, W-O-L-A-H-A-N, is a patriot and should be embraced by Liberal Party supporters. Also on the show, Professor David Flint. He'll join me in the Sydney studio where we'll discuss, amongst other things, the Prime Minister's decision to appoint an Assistant Minister for the Republic. I don't know where the minister has got to because there is no mention of a minister, but there is mention of his assistant. Don't know what that means. We'll see if we can find out. But are we meaning to say there's someone in our national parliament whose sole job is to undermine the constitutional monarchy that we enjoy today, the best form by far of representative government, as well as providing necessary checks and balances? This whole idea of bulldozing Australia into a, public is just, into a republic is just wacky. The Republicans, who themselves are very elitist and left-leaning, never give up on hating our institutions, but they never seem to know, do they, what republic model they'd support. Labor also banging on about a so-called Indigenous voice, acting as a third legislature in our parliament. So we'll talk to Professor Flint about what that's all about. But remember, you too can have your say. Just email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Now, there's been any amount of discussion about changes in political leadership in the coalition parties, and I've addressed that earlier this week. It should be pointed out again, though, that the new National Party leader, Little Proud, said on Monday he'd been dreaming since he was four of becoming leader of the National Party. You can gauge where his priorities lie, can't you? They weren't about you or the Bush or the betterment of the nation, but rather using the National Party to advance his own ambitions. The Little Proud leadership will be a policy and ideas vacuum of little help to Peter Dutton. But with a new government and its ministers being sworn in yesterday, the really hard stuff starts. There is no use gilding the lily. The global economy is slowing. Inflation's rising and with both interest rates heading north. Our economy is at a knife edge. I've referred several times to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has generated an energy shock in the global economy. I'll look at that later in the program, but the net zero commitment, even at this early stage, looks at best fanciful. While approximately 80% of the new cabinet have ministerial experience, that doesn't apply to the two people in charge of the economy, Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher. 
Gallagher's biggest previous job was first minister in the ACT. She's utterly unsuited for this important role. Jim Chalmers, on the other hand, has spent most of his life, as one person put it, managing and manoeuvring in the backroom of Labor politics. He was the chief of staff and principal advisor to the then federal treasurer, Wayne Swan. Well, was Jim Chalmers advising Wayne Swan in 2010 when Mr Swan said, quote, we're getting back into surplus in three years, come hell or high water, unquote. Of course, it never happened. Was Jim Chalmers advising Mr Swan in 2011? And this is the role of the chief of staff. When his boss, Wayne Swan, said, quote, delivering a 2012-13 surplus is right for confidence and it's right for jobs. It's the right economic policy for the times, unquote. Of course, it didn't happen. Labor had been promising a surplus in 2012-13 since May 2010. Mr Chalmers was with Treasurer Swan for all those years. Perhaps his judgment has improved. We hope so, because to be fair to Chalmers and the incoming Labor government, and it is a reality we must face, the Morrison government leaves Australia with the worst fiscal record of any post-war government. Peter Dutton is going to have to be careful attacking the new government on the economy. The coalition inherited gross national debt at 20% of GDP. By the time COVID struck, it was up to 28%. There had been no crisis. It's now 42.5% of GDP. Someone, and it's got to be Chalmers, is going to have to get serious about managing the economy because the budget papers tell us that debt will climb to 44.9% of GDP in two years' time. Now, forget the politics. That is almost twice as bad as the worst performance by a Labor government in the last 50 years, such that we are paying $18 billion a year in interest on the national debt, and the budget has forecast that will rise to $26 billion a year within four years, if we're lucky, because interest rates are going to go up again, aren't they? $2 billion a month. So what does Chalmers do? Does he ignore the debt? After all, Labor's election costings document outlined 111 new spending commitments. Are we going to see more spending with debt already headed to top a trillion dollars? Do we see higher deficits? Do we see drastic budget cuts to repair the bottom line or will that tip the economy too far the other way? The first task should be a simple one, and that is cut waste. Again, in spite of the Morrison government's small government rhetoric, Scott Morrison ran the most expensive government in recent times, 34% more expensive than Rudd's 2013 government when adjusted for inflation. And that's in the federal budget papers. Just taking the federal government's cost of running government, in 2011-10-11, it was $52.4 billion. It is now tipped to be over $100 billion, up a staggering 90% adjusted for inflation, 60%. There are blowouts in government expenditure everywhere, along with ineffective government spending and poor processes, leading to poor decision-making. But the public are not gonna suffer an Albanese government blaming everything on its predecessor. They've been elected to fix the problem. Do they proceed with their 111 new spending commitments made during the election campaign? What's to happen to the $20 billion rewiring the nation fund, the $10 billion housing Australia future fund, the $15 billion national reconstruction fund, the $1.5 billion medical manufacturing fund, the $1 billion for a critical technologies fund. If Chalmers and Gallagher are true to their promise that there'll be a line by line audit of budget spending, 
We here on this program will keep them to the promise. Where will the cuts be made? Because what I see is nothing more than an eye-watering increase to the $1 trillion debt by adding billions and billions of dollars of further spending. Now, this stuff can't go on. It conjures up all the worst fears about a Labor government. They can dismantle those fears immediately by cutting waste. And there's a stack of it. Well, this is something new. The political focus in Canberra is too often on the leadership. We've become very presidential. And as people survey the wreckage of the Liberal Party, the question is often asked of me, where do we go from here? Well, I'll tell you where you go. There are outstanding people representing the Liberal Party in the parliament, and there are outstanding people who would be happy to represent the party were it not for factional bullies like in New South Wales, Alex Hawke and Michael Fotios. And there are equivalents to them in Victoria and South Australia. Who knows where the Liberal Party heads in WA. But I noticed in Tasmania yesterday, the new Liberal Premier there wants to shift Australia Day to, quote, a less divisive date. And he wants an Indigenous voice to the Federal Parliament. And I wondered whether this bloke, Jeremy Rockliffe, was a Liberal Premier or a Labor Premier, perhaps a forgettable Premier. But back to outstanding talent. One such person is the recently elected Victorian Liberal member for the seat of Menzies, replacing the outstanding servant of the party for many years, Kevin Andrews. Indeed, Kevin Andrews replaced the gifted Neil Brown in 1991 and held the seat until this year, 31 years, the longest continuous tenure of any current member of the House of Representatives. The new member's name is Keith Wallahan. This is a terrific story. He's 44 years of age. He's got a wife and two children. He was born in Dublin. He migrated to Australia with his family in 1988, becoming an Australian citizen in 1993. He was school captain of Ringwood Secondary College in Victoria, and while there worked at McDonald's for three years to make a few bob. He graduated in arts and commerce from the University of Melbourne. He then completed an honours degree in law at Monash University, where he was awarded the Sir Charles Lowe Prize for Best Advocate. He then completed a master's degree in international relations at Cambridge University. My point is, there are a lot of Keith Wallahans out there, immensely credentialed. The Liberal Party fails because more often than not, it doesn't allow the cream to rise to the top. Keith Wallahan, the new member for the seat of Menzies, then worked with the national commercial law firm, Mallison's Stephen Jakes, before becoming a barrister in 2010, where he specialised in commercial and consumer law. He also served in the Australian Army. He completed a part-time officer training course at Duntroon, reaching the rank of captain. He qualified as a commando, serving several periods of full-time service with Special Operations Command, including one tour, uh, tour of Timor-Leste and three combat tours of Afghanistan. And in the 2011 Australia Day Honours, the new member for the seat of Menzies was decorated with a commendation for distinguished service for performance of duty in action as a platoon commander. Now, I ask you, do you reckon that doesn't demonstrate that there are people of quality in the Liberal Party? Let's get them to the top instead of blocking people because of a factional preference. If I was Peter Dutton, I'd have this bloke on the front bench straight away. Pleasingly, he joins me. So there you are, you're all embarrassed about all of that and I don't care. So <laughs> Keith, thank you for your time. Congratulations. The pre-selectors have made an outstanding choice, as have the voters in Menzies. What prompted your family to come to Australia from Dublin when you were 11? 
Alan, thank you for having me. And it's lovely to be here with your viewers from around the world. Um, my dad had been here as a young man on a gap year from Ireland and he fell in love. He fell in love with Australia's natural beauty and its opportunities for people who are willing to work hard and take risks. So he just was always going to take our family to Australia after that. So are your mum and dad still with us to witness your success? They are. I'm very lucky. My mum had me when she was 19. I was an accident, um, but they <laughs> persevered, and I'm glad they did. Mum um, worked uh, minimum wage jobs, she, including aged care. Uh, she's seen what it's like in aged care, uh, trying to help people. And dad is a roof plumber, uh, so he runs his own small business. He still climbs up on ladders and fixes gutters and does people's roofs, and he's very good at it, but they're both proud. Your, your, your master's degree from Cambridge, the thesis, was defence, justice and the war on territory. What was your central argument there? Well, that was actually my honours thesis. My uh, master's thesis was about negligence in war. Um, so... What interested me, Alan, was in my experiences in Afghanistan and looking at Iraq was that 90% of civilian casualties were non-intentional. So they weren't, it wasn't meant to happen and no one intended for that to happen. So I explored whether there is a role for negligence in war crimes. And I concluded that save for certain ex exceptions like command responsibility or the Yamashita standard, as, as you're very familiar with, yes. um, the, it's an ill-suited culpability standard for war. And, and it was, um, and that's really reflected in the current war crimes uh, mm. treaties and legislation that we have mm. here as well. Well, just on Afghanistan, now, I have seen some of the terrain in which you, people like you, had to fight the Taliban. What are your enduring memories of that Afghanistan experience? Well, the terrain sticks in my mind. It, mm. in, in many respects, it's like New Zealand. It looks like Lord of the Rings was filmed there, but mm. really it was about the people. Uh, the people of Afghanistan are incredibly brave and particularly young people. Um, but also I got to see young Australians at their best and whatever generation of Australians, I came away from those three tours knowing that when it counts, Australians are capable of immense bravery and immense patriotism. Uh, but in the end, wars are started and ended in the political process. And that's one of the drivers that has taken mm. me to this position here. I note you said in response to the Liberal Party's defeat on May 21 that the Morrison government's rhetoric on China contributed to the party's defeat. Just amplify that for us. Let me tell you a bit about the seat of Menzies um, that I've been elected to. Menzies is a seat with where 20% of people identify as Chinese and it's a diverse community. Um, but speaking to them, uh, conducting Chinese language phone canvassing phone calls and on election day when the Chinese booth swung enormously, some as high as 16%, it was quite clear that they felt we weren't separating our disagreements with the Chinese regime, with the Chinese people. And I think they said that that wasn't something we were making clear or mm. making often enough. Mm. But you made that point, as I understand it, prior to the election, did you not, with members of the Cabinet? But one of the weaknesses is that they seem impervious to advice. Did someone tell you when the then government criticised China that they were referring to the government and not its citizens? I mean, that wasn't made clear. I've always said the Chinese community in Australia have made a tremendous contribution to our social and economic fabric. And would you agree? I mean, we must always separate the aggression of the Chinese leadership from the aspirations of the Chinese people. When you gave that advice to cabinet ministers prior to the election, did they take any notice of you? 
Uh, it was to one, and and they did, and they listened with intent uh, to what I had to say because they knew that I wasn't just saying this anecdotally. It was based on no. the feedback from thousands yeah. of phone calls, and, and they absolutely agreed. And I didn't mean that as criticism of them. The, the feedback was that our communication wasn't well, clear enough, clear. And, and of course, mm. Australia's. That's right, and and that's what we needed to do a better job of. And that person took that on board, but it's hard to turn that ship around in the last few weeks. Of Absolutely. The I noticed you've said that your focus as a member of parliament will be on economic and national security issues. What kind of issues would you want to prosecute? Well, at two thirds of the seat of Menzies are first or second generation migrants like me, and migrants know that while there are things about Australia that are not perfect. Uh, compared to every other country on earth, this is one of the best places you can be. So there are things that I think are worth fighting for, and they uh, let me go through some of them, Alan. I think we need to preserve this as a nation where we reward hard work, intellect, and courage, and that has to matter more than your identity, your postcode, or your connections. And right. those are fragile things. I think we need to make sure that the government lives within its means again, uh, more than ever, I don't want our second, third and fourth generations looking at the debt that we incurred um, in the last decade or more. We need to start turning that around. We need to defend democracy, free speech and the rule of law. And then finally, I think we need a foreign policy and a defence strategy that is forward-leaning and agile. And and on that, you know, I, I'm an Australian first, so I, I do wish the Albanese government the best success in foreign policy and defence because we need them to be on top of their game. Wonderful. Magnificent. See, my viewers, I told you, I'd stick this bloke on the front bench tomorrow. Just a question because you're a Victorian MP. Why is the Liberal Party so invisible and unsuccessful in Victoria? I mean, in spite of Daniel Andrews' world-breaking lockdowns and appearances before the Anti-Corruption Commission, Victorian Labor won 24 seats. The Liberals won eight. The Coalition won 11. It's, there's no easy answer, Alan, and I think about that all the time and people ask me all the time, it's not easy being a Liberal in Victoria, but, but that doesn't mean we don't try harder. And but it I used to be, it, Keith, it of, used to be the jewel of the crown. It did, it did. And, but we saw things change in New South Wales. And one of the things they did in New South Wales was reach out to the Western suburbs and the new migrant communities. Uh, can I give you an example, Alan? When I was a platoon commander in Afghanistan, none of the platoon commanders were born in Australia. We were all born overseas. There's a sense of patriotism in migrant communities that I think we need to recognise and say that you are not bolted onto the Labor Party, but we need to make an effort and the Liberal Party needs to turn up and say that we're here for you and you can be our people too. Amazing. It's magnificent. We will talk to you often, my friend. I hope the Wallahans of this world can turn all this around, but it's good to talk and I just want viewers to know that there are talented people in the Liberal Party who want to serve, have the ability to serve where merit guides their ambition. This man is one of them. Good to talk to you, Keith Wallahan, the recently elected member for the federal seat of Menzies. Can't thank you for your time tonight, Keith, and all the best. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate it. How impressive is that bloke? That's why I wanted to introduce him to you. Well, as I mentioned yesterday when speaking to David Maddox from Britain, Thursday London time will see the beginning of the biggest four days of partying that Britain most probably has ever seen the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. The 70th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's ascendance to the throne was actually on Sunday, February 6, on the death of her father, King George VI, in 1952. 
It would be a mistake to suggest that this is simply an exercise in patriotism, nor is it a riotous celebration of the institution of the Crown. Rather, it's a celebration of the life and achievements of the individual who wears it. It's been a torrid 18 months for the Queen. The death of her husband, Prince Philip, took a heavy emotional toll, such that her ageing body was forced to work from home. Then a bout of coronavirus and several family scandals and dramas have not helped. But this weekend, the world will see Queen Elizabeth standing alongside her family, including the next three men in line to be king, Charles, William and eight-year-old George. It's said the nation will spend in our currency $1.4 billion on food and drink and themed decorations. There'll be more than 16,000 street parties. Of course, the odious Harry and Meghan have arrived. As non-working royals, they're excluded from any formal proceedings and banned, along with Prince Andrew, from appearing on the balcony of Buckingham Palace after the Trooping the Colour. That ceremony, Trooping the Colour, is a military parade dating back to the 17th century, performed by more than 1,400 parading soldiers, 200 horses and 400 musicians. The guards who take part form one of the oldest regiments in the British Army, the Household Division. They're like the Queen's bodyguards or personal troops, and they've been part of the monarchy since the English Civil War ended in 1660. Now, Colours was the name given to the flags representing different regiments in the British Army. They were used so that soldiers could easily spot their unit when they were on the battlefield so they wouldn't get lost in battle. It was important that soldiers knew which colours belonged to which regiment. Officers would march up and down in front of the troops, hence the trooping, waving their flags, hence colours, so everyone could see which regiment they belonged to. Each year at Trooping the Colour, a different regiment's colours are trooped. At the end of it all, there's a 41-gun salute in Green Park next to the palace and a special aerobatic display by the RAF's display team, the Red Arrows, and it's all over. However, this time the Queen will take the salute from the balcony of Buckingham Palace, understandably because of certain infirmities. Tomorrow, Friday, London time, there'll be a Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral, the only formal event for Harry and Meghan. As part of the celebrations, there's the Platinum Jubilee pageant, which will tell the story of the Queen's 70-year reign in four acts. And in the first act, Queen and Country, a military parade of 1,750 people and 200 horses, that will include 39 members of the Australian Defence Force. It's said to be one of the largest military spectacles in modern history. Then there is the carnival finale, featuring thousands of people, including Ed Sheeran, Sir Cliff Richard, puppet corgis, and a giant 3D bust of the Queen, seen by TV audiences across the globe, running into hundreds of millions. At some point, the Queen will be meeting her great-granddaughter and namesake Lilibet for the first time, privately. But the Queen won't be at Epsom on Saturday to watch the derby. She'll watch the races at home. I think the nation and indeed the world realise that this is most probably the last time her supporters will be able to celebrate the Queen and her achievements in such a public manner. I suspect there's a realisation now that the bedrock of stability in British life will not be around forever. Whether you're a monarchist or not, I think there'd be universal agreement with the comments made in the House of Commons last week by the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who amongst other things said, and I quote, no monarch 
by her efforts, dedication and achievement, better deserves the attribute of greatness. And for me, said the British Prime Minister, she is already Elizabeth the Great. And that, I think, says it all. Look, it's not hard to get a little confused in this job. I have read and reread the full ministry announced by Prime Minister Albanese, 42 of the 103 Labor members of the House of Representatives and the Senate get a Guernsey. And amongst them is Matt Thistlethwaite, who's the Assistant Minister for the Republic. But I can find no person named as the Minister for the Republic. Let's see if we can make some sense of this and the agenda it represents. But I will make this preliminary point. From day one after being sworn in, Anthony Albanese's primary focus would have been to make sure nothing was going to interfere with his government being elected for a second term. But if you start introducing divisive issues like a republic or the establishment in the constitution of an elected voice to parliament exclusively for Indigenous people, you'll go to the next election as the person who caused an electoral brawl over issues that via referenda may not have the support of the majority of Australians. Let's bring in someone who knows all about this constitutionally, Professor David Flint, who is the National Convener of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. David Flint, thank you for your time. What do you make of this Assistant Minister for the Republic where there is no named minister? I find that extraordinary, particularly when the Constitution says that the executive government is to maintain the Constitution and here we have a minister whose job is to undermine a significant part of the constitution. That is the crown, meaning all of the viceroys, the viceregal people and the queen. And his job is to undermine that, although we haven't taken a decision on it. Mm. And I would have thought that if they wanted to have another referendum, they could have that. But it's such an enormous distraction. Mm. You're so right, this is so divisive. Mm. The time has passed for this. It's no longer the fashionable thing for people in no. Wentworth and Wurunga no. and places no. like that to support. But shortly after the election, Matt Thistlethwaite said, the government was committed to having a discussion with the public about becoming a republic, but enshrining an indigenous voice to parliament in the constitution, he said, would be a bigger first term priority. Now, I'll come back to the Republic bit, but I must be Professor Thin, uh, Flint as thick as some of my viewers. What is meant by enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution? Alan, you've put it on it. And all these people who are supporting it, from the churches, from big business, yeah. and all sorts of lobbies, are supporting something which none of us have seen. We have no idea what it is. Uh, we, we know, for example, in New Zealand, when they changed the electoral system, so you kept on putting in more politicians, some of the wags call it the MMP system, many yeah. more politicians. Mm. <laughs> and one suspects that that's what this is, this what Malcolm Turnbull called the third chamber. This is to have more politicians, more elites with big offices and Commonwealth cars and superannuation and vast staffs. So it'll be very nice for a lot of people, but what they, will they be doing? Quite. Well, I mean, the government seems to be saying this is a first priority. I would have thought the first priority was to tell us what it all means. 
Exactly. And we particularly want to know what the High Court might do with it. Why? Because the High Court invented native title. There was no native title until the High Court decided that there would be. Then they decided that leases weren't a protection against native title. Uh, and then they decided very recently, a couple of years ago, that uh, some people who weren't citizens of Australia but could claim some Aboriginal descent that they couldn't be deported as aliens, which right. they obviously were, for committing very serious and mm. violent crimes. So Astonishing. We, we don't know what this is. No. We don't know what the High Court will do with it because we, the High Court has done all sorts of strange things here, feeling that they have to do something in relation to Indigenous people. We are, I was at the Opera House a few months ago and uh, before the performance started, we had the usual formula, which is virtue signalling by those who run the Opera House, that we must pay our respects to the Indigenous people and their leaders, past, president and emerging. They've added emerging, so it goes on for some time. And this makes a lot of people feel very good. Mm. But Jacinta Price, the new senator, has really hit the nail on the head. She's explained this is not what is needed, no. not more politicians. No. What is needed is dealing with the serious problems of child and abuse of women, both violence and sexual, which is completely out of proportion and out of control in, in, in the, some parts of the remote in areas, part, in the remote communities. Absolutely. Just back to this Republic, according to the Assistant Minister of the Republic, quote, Labor is committed to at some stage holding a discussion with the Australian public about moving towards having an Australian head of state. Uh, we already have one. But anyway, then the point that the government was weighing up, quote, whether they use a referendum or a plebiscite to decide on keeping a British monarch. Now, David Flint, you're a constitutional expert. What are the constitutional niceties of this? Wasn't the Office of Governor-General, our constitutional head of state, established by the Constitution itself of the Commonwealth in 1901? Exactly. And uh, in 1907, a High Court consisting of those who wrote the Constitution said he is the constitutional head of the Commonwealth. It's all clear, very clear. When he goes overseas, he, the foreign governments are told he is the Australian head of state. And when there was some fuss in uh, Jakarta because we had somebody in the embassy who was misinforming the Indonesian president and he was told he wouldn't be received as the head of state, he decided not to go and the Hawke government agreed fully with him and a, a protest was given to the Indonesian government. But, but what's this talk about being able to alter all of this by a plebiscite and not a referendum? What's well, the constitutional capacity of this to be altered via a plebiscite? Well, we've had an opinion that this is unconstitutional to even try to do this in I advance. But it's, it's applying that old principle of the European Union, the people must keep on voting until yes. they get it right. Yes. We've already voted on this. The politicians were distracted by it. It was highly wasteful. It divided the Liberal Party. There's a convention about it. They, they, they had a, a referendum on it. All of the media, the mainstream media, except you were in favour of it. All of the politicians, or most of the politicians, were in favour of it, business was in favour of it, but when the people actually voted, 
in every state and in the Commonwealth and in 72% of electorates, the people voted very solidly no. And you know what, Alan? Whenever they've tried that again with another referendum on a subject where the people have said no, and sometimes this has been done up to five times, the people never change their minds. No, no. See, there's an outfit called the Australian Republic Movement. I don't want to give them too much publicity, but I would have thought movement is most probably redundant because I don't think the push for a republic is going anywhere. But Australians declined the invitation, as you rightly said, to become a republic in 1999. I would imagine they'd be more emphatically willing to decline change if a referendum were to be repeated. But nonetheless, here there's talk about having 11, the republic movement, having 11 people chosen by whomever, I don't know, and then someone would decide one of those to be president. I mean, where the hell does this nonsense come from and where's it going to? Because that's going to be, they're trying to mix the Republicans who want to have an election with those who don't want to have the president to have any control. So they've stripped, in this model, they've stripped the president of any reserved powers. He can't do anything in relation to the constitution. And the president will be chosen, as you rightly say, by the politicians choosing the candidates oh, stop it. in each parliament. Oh, stop it. It's, it's a guided democracy yeah. and it, it won't work. No hope. It'll cost hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. every five years. Utterly offensive. So, I, I, we're always short of time, but I want to ask you about the Uluru Statement because Labor seem to be saying that the discussion about becoming a republic will play second fiddle to enshrining an Indigenous voice to parliament in the constitution. Now, I've already said no one knows what that means, but you've lectured on a wide range of subjects, including constitutional law. Just explain again what you think is meant by an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. Well, I think Malcolm Turnbull hit the nail on the head when he said it's going to be a third chamber. It's going to be something which will have, a, have an opinion on every piece of legislation, no doubt and it'll be followed by the ABC and some of the newspapers as if it were a major part. The High Court will be wondering whether it has more than just an advisory role. They may well give it some sort of other role because they've done this to other things. Mm. So it's a, it's a dangerous proposal. It's but going but to be Australians, costly. David, Australians feel locked out of all of this. I mean, I know the National Constitutional Convention at Uluru in 2017 was the culmination of talks with about 1,200 Indigenous people, but many Indigenous people tell me they were excluded from the process, other Australians were excluded from the process, and the co-chair of the dialogue, Megan Davis, talks about preparing for a referendum on a voice to Parliament. But hang on, following the recent election, there'll be 10 Indigenous representatives in the federal parliament. We don't have 10 tradies in the parliament, we don't have 10 elderly people, we don't have 10 disabled people. Aren't 10 Indigenous Australians a fairly profound and welcome representation? I think that's very good and it's wonderful that we have that. Yeah. And it's wonderful particularly that Jacinta Price is there in the Senate yeah. because she, she has nailed the thing on the wall and she has said, this is not what we need. What we need is the leaders who designed those, these things to do something about the serious problems which exist in the remote areas. This, the Uluru Statement says we are the most incarcerated people in the world. Well, they have to really ask why 
is there a higher prison rate in relation to the remote areas? And it's the problems there which the leaders are not attending to. And Jacinta Price will be on top of that in the parliament. I just uh, before we go, and I just say to our viewers, Adam Bant has said he's not going to he's going to oppose a voice in the Constitution until (laughs) elements of truth telling and a treaty are resolved ahead of the Indigenous voice. Just quickly, David, what is meant by a truth-telling commission? Well, this is a commission which will tell us what the facts are, <laughs> and we'd better not deviate in any way from those Or you'll be called a facts. racist. Yes. Or you'll be called a racist. <laughs> and, and how can one have a treaty yeah. with people inside the territory of Australia, with citizens of Australia? You can't have a treaty with citizens. A treaty is with well, foreign powers. This is where we're heading. This is where we're heading. We'll keep talking, David. Certainly. Our viewers love to, love to hear your, your viewpoints on these things. But look, it's terribly controversial. And I thought this was the very thing that Anthony Albanese was avoiding. He wanted to unite Australia. He said, this is not going to unite Australia. It's a very, very divisive issue. Professor David Flynn, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. Well, this week has seen people in many parts of Australia virtually freezing. The air conditions have gone on, along with the electric and gas heaters, and I presume the electric blanket. Could that indulgence, for many years regarded, hasn't been as an entitlement, could that come to an end, simply because of the inability of business and consumers to afford new energy, electricity or gas prices? It can never be surprising when an incoming government seeks to highlight the limitations of its predecessor. But in doing so, you must avoid talking down the nation's prospects. Nonetheless, in a piece written today by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers, He talks about inheriting major challenges in our economy. I referred to some of this earlier in the program, but I want to come to a more critical point. Interestingly, in his piece, Chalmers highlights the, quote, defining challenges, and he nominates inflation, real wages, and more than a trillion dollars of debt, quote, chock full of rorts and waste, unquote. However, we wake today to learn also of surging fruit and vegetable prices, driven by flooding, and the increased operating costs for farmers. Fresh produce has risen in price across the board. And we're told these price pressures, supermarket prices, will be in place at least until the end of the year. The first point to be made is that it's one thing to detail a litany of allegedly inherited woes, but Labor campaigned on the fact that it could provide cheaper everything. Well, away you go, Mr Chalmers. But the one thing that Labor don't want to talk about, and you guessed it, and I've warned about it, energy prices. Well, now add the freezing conditions and a shortage of coal at a rearing, Australia's largest power station, and the new government's promise for cheaper everything is suddenly under siege. And to that internationally, coal, gas and oil prices have hit multi-year highs on global markets due to sanctions on Russian exports. And on energy, the elephant in the room, we're in for a rocky road. What's been described as a perfect storm of energy price hikes, which will damage employers, business, households, and the national economy. I'll come to coal in a moment. But boosting gas supplies. Now, Manufacturing Australia, which represents major gas users, has called on the federal government to invoke the Australian Domestic Gas Security Mechanism. Don't be intimidated by the title. I have argued for years that Australia should reserve an amount of gas that must be sold only on the domestic market. However, the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, which represents gas producers, opposes a gas reservation policy. 
They argue correctly, I suppose, that 90% of the gas market is covered by long-term contracts. And that's true, sold overseas. But we're now suffering the consequences of that. I have said that when licenses are given for gas exploration, they should be given on the condition that a significant proportion of domestic gas is available for domestic consumption. That would be one answer to the energy crisis. Gas is our resource. It should be available to us at a domestic price, not an internationally inflated price. And then there's coal. And that's a big part of today's energy crisis. But I thought the argument of the lefties, the Greens and the Teals and many on the coalition and government side was that we can do without coal. Something, I don't know what, will fill the energy void. But we are dependent on coal. Repeat after me. Today, the call is, how can we lift the output of coal generating capacity? There have been coal outages in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. There's been a spike in coal prices on global markets. Now, Araring, southwest of Newcastle, one and a half hours from Sydney, owned by Origin Energy, is the nation's largest coal-fired power station. I should say they wanted to shut it down as soon as mid-2025. But this is how critical coal is to both our energy needs and our energy price. Without coal-fired power, as we see today, the price will go through the roof. Your electricity bill. The problems with the rearing are as a consequence of its supplier, Centennial Coal, and its Mandalong mine. Deliveries from the mine are expected to be interrupted during the remainder of the financial year and into the first half of next year. The Albanese government will soon learn that it's one thing to try to take the bark off your predecessor's record in economic management, but they won't wash. The public want to know how the new government will handle changing economic conditions. Treasurer Chalmers has indicated inflation, real wages and debt. But to people in Struggle Street, surging fruit and vegetable prices, a winter that could be fairly severe, a shortage of coal for the nation's largest power station, which could precipitate our worst energy crisis in decades, escalating gas prices, manufacturers and consumer groups are calling for the Albanese government to intervene to alleviate spiralling power bills. Now, the government does have some breathing space. The new parliament won't sit until July 26. But the reality is manufacturers, business, employers, consumers and you, households in Struggle Street, not in the leafy and wealthy teal electorates, these people can't wait until July 26 for an answer to massive electricity and gas bills. Tell us how net zero fits into all of this. And tell us where the election promise of everything cheaper in order to win government sits with the reality today that everything is dearer. Well, before we go, Elon Musk is proving to be a billionaire that we can all back. Unlike the woke billionaires we have here in Australia. Yes, I am talking about you, Mike Cannon-Brooks. Instead of trying to trash our energy grid and make it even more unreliable and intermittent, the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, is talking real talk. And by that, I mean, he's telling his employees at Tesla to get back into the office. In other words, the days of working from home are over. Now, I know many other CEOs in Australia have been saying the same thing. In an email to all staff, which was leaked, Elon Musk told staff at the electric vehicle company that they had to spend at least 40 hours in company offices or leave. Musk wrote in his email, quote, everyone at Tesla is required to spend a minimum of 40 hours in the office per week. If you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. Too right. 
I'm going to hear bosses all over the world cheering. But he went on, the more senior you are, the more visible must be your presence. That's why I lived in the factory so much, so that those on the line could see me working alongside them. If I'd not done that, Tesla would long ago have gone bankrupt, unquote. And then he said, there are, of course, companies that don't require this, but when was the last time they shipped a great new product? It's been a while. Tesla has and will create and actually manufacture the most exciting and meaningful products of any company on earth. This will not happen by phoning it in. Well, it's not all bad. He did mention in his email to all staff that if there were exceptional circumstances where staff could not do this, he would review and approve them directly. But the days of this whole working from home business for the entire week are long gone. Barnaby Joyce once dubbed them the laptop class. He's right. For the past two months, it's beyond comprehension that government have aided and abetted this culture of staying at home and still being paid. What mechanisms are in place to, to ensure that the work is being done? It becomes a nightmare for management to police. So there are people who work from home and that suits their lifestyle. If you've got young children or as Musk says, are experiencing exceptional circumstances, but it should never be the norm. On the flip side, government must turn off the tap for social welfare to those who can work, but choose not to work. Business productivity is down because of it. Only this week, Mary Vale's Justin Hemmies came out and said his restaurants are trading 20% less and his pubs are short of 1,000 staff. Now, there are unfilled, unfilled jobs everywhere at the moment. And there is no reason why politicians on both sides, Labor and the Coalition, this should not stop the country from being sucked dry by welfareism. Companies across Australia are offering huge sign-on bonuses, or even crazier if you refer someone and they do end up being the right fit for the job and take the job, you yourself will get a bonus. It is insane. Jim Chalmers has a job on his hands. The Liberals couldn't tackle it. Maybe Labor can. People need to get off their backsides. Business can't find staff, yet there are officially 537,000 unemployed people and on welfare. Are they unemployed or unemployable? That's it from me for this week. Thank you for watching ADH TV. Don't forget the website, adh.tv. It's all there. I hope by the time we next meet, Raphael Nadal would have won his 14th French championship. Go, Rafa. Have a good weekend. I'll see you Monday night. Good night.